Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.32, Resetting the War Effort. By the end of 1757, the British were in a terrible place in the French and Indian War. The North American campaign had been nothing but devastating loss after devastating loss. All of the hope that had been placed in Loudoun by this point had been crushed, as, since his arrival, the British had lost Fort Oswego and Fort William Henry. Fort William Henry in particular had been a serious blow, following the slaughter of the men and women in the fort by the French-allied Indians, following its surrender. Loudoun's big expedition to take Louisbourg, to gain control over the entrance to the St. Lawrence, was dead on arrival, getting no closer to Louisbourg than Halifax. And while it is probably not fair to stick Oswego on Loudoun, that loss belongs far more to William Shirley. Fort William Henry and the failed Lewisburg expedition, those are all him. As though this was not enough, Loudoun had done pretty much everything in his personal power to ensure that the colonists really hated his guts. And to be totally honest and fair here, the feelings were completely mutual. Loudon hated the colonists just as much as they hated him. When he had first come to North America, he had done so nearly with the powers of a viceroy. He stepped on a lot of toes to be sure, which was something totally within his grant of power. He had stretched the colonies thin in both terms of giving money and supplies, as well as providing the necessary manpower to fight. If Loudon was aware of the intricacies of colonial politics, he certainly did not seem to care about them. We need to look no further than his embargo on the colonies in 1757 to see that. Yes, it was successful. However, the fact that he showed really no intentions of lifting it goes to show just how much he valued those things that concerned the operations of the colonies. Was the embargo destroying colonial economies and causing widespread misery and suffering? Yes, yes it was. Loudon, however, remained completely focused on the war effort and thus almost completely disregarded the plight and complaints of the colonists. This episode with the embargo, however, goes directly towards what Loudon viewed as the very problem with the colonists. If the colonists viewed Loudon as a tyrant, one completely focused on his own needs, Loudon viewed the colonists as being obstinate and duplicitous. They did not care about the greater war. They only cared about what was best for them, the rest of Britain be damned. Recall that Loudon only lifted the embargo when his hands were completely tied, after Virginia and Maryland decided that they were done with the embargo, and they were going to reopen regardless of what Loudon thought about it. With his expedition to Lewisburg already underway, Loudon acquiesced, though he was disgusted by the insubordination that was coming out of the colonial assemblies and governors alike. When the campaigns of 1757 went poorly, Loudon wasted zero time in pointing the finger back towards the colonial governments as the reason for the failures. Now, as we are going to see later today, most of these problems for Loudon are going to end up not really mattering, so his actions were little more than him screaming into the void. Loudon spent much of the winter of 1757 into 1758 making demands of the colonial governors and assemblies and growing increasingly frustrated when the colonial governments refused to simply get on board with his demands. He kept shouting that he was in control, and the colonies kept replying, yeah, okay, 
Sure you are. Again, though, none of this is really going to matter all that much in the long run. To understand why Loudon's beef with the colonial governments does not really matter much, we must first head back across the Atlantic to Europe, and back in time to the fall of 1757. It is there that Loudon's fate would be indirectly sealed on a battlefield near Hanover. I had mentioned last time that William Pitt came to power in 1756 and had become the leader of the House of Commons. However, the rising star of Pitt was not working with unchecked power. In fact, Pitt shared much of his power over the war effort with another man, specifically the Duke of Cumberland. Cumberland was a powerful check on the power of Pitt and certainly had the king's ear. You see, the Duke of Cumberland was Prince William, the youngest son of the king. Conveniently for William Pitt, he would not have to do all that much plotting and scheming to affect the downfall of Cumberland. Indeed, all he would really have to do is sit back and wait. What would lead to the downfall of Cumberland was a devastating loss to the French right outside of Hanover. The French forces had surrounded the Hanoverian forces that Cumberland was commanding and cut off any hope of reaching the sea, where the British Navy might have been able to bail them out. With no real chance of victory and a very high probability of a massacre, should they not surrender, Cumberland was in a tight spot. Not interested in being slaughtered, on September 8, 1757, Cumberland surrendered his forces. While the surrender was not exactly harsh in terms, it spelled the end of the road for the Duke of Cumberland. The problem is that George II was none too thrilled about the capitulation largely because it was a double blow for him. On the continent, it was another loss in a war that seems to have been full of losses for the British. However, more than that, Hanover was not just another British ally. We are now into the era of the Hanoverian monarchs. George II was the king in Great Britain, but he was also the prince-elector of Hanover. Cumberland's capitulation therefore marked not just a blow for the continental war effort, but a humiliation for George II personally. Now, although George II had actually told Cumberland to negotiate a peace, it quickly became very obvious that George was not taking the loss very well. The king did nothing to hide his deep disappointment in his youngest son, and Cumberland was forced to quickly resign. On October 15th, the king accepted the resignation without any hesitation. Well, George II sat around stewing in disgrace disappointment over the loss. The moment marked a dramatic upturn in the fortunes of William Pitt. His chief rival, one who clearly was close with the king, was suddenly and largely unexpectedly gone. Furthermore, nobody at all could make the argument that the war was going well. Everybody knew that the entire thing had been a dumpster fire. With Cumberland now gone and William Pitt firmly in control over the war effort, there was far less of a check against him from totally upending the then-existing war policy, because clearly it wasn't working. Pitt suddenly had the king's attention and the opportunity to remake the war in the way that he saw fit. With William Pitt now having his voice much more clearly heard, he quickly set out to change how the war was going to be conducted. Pitt was able to recognize that the British were not going to be able to win this war through dramatic victories on the continent itself. 
the French land army was considerably more formidable than what the British could muster, something that pretty much everybody accepted. However, Pitt also understood that the continental portion of the war was really just a single element in a much greater conflict, a conflict where the British held numerous advantages. The British might not have an army that was going to march to a glorious victory. However, they commanded the superior navy. A navy that could help pin the French down enough that nobody got any crazy ideas about doing something, like launching an invasion of Britain itself. Pitt also realized that while the British did not have the superior army in Europe when compared to the French, in North America it was a completely different story. We have indeed already talked about many of these advantages. First and foremost, however, the British had a vastly larger population base than did the French. Pitt could clearly see that, yeah, we probably are not going to be capturing Paris anytime soon. But Quebec? Well, yeah, we can probably do that. In Pitt's eyes, the future of the British Empire was in the empire itself. Britain was a small island lacking in the resources of many of the major continental powers. But with a powerful navy, they could challenge those same great powers abroad. A mercantilist to his core, Pitt perceived that he was playing a zero-sum game. Capturing territory globally would not only increase the power of the British, but it would also deny the other colonial powers the same holdings, thus weakening them at the same time. Pitt was not blind to the situation in North America either. The British war in North America had been a series of unmitigated disasters. From the moment that Jumonville was killed to the Indian massacre at Fort William Henry a few months prior, nothing had gone well for the British to date. What Pitt had no interest in doing, therefore, was repeating the mistakes that had already been made. We never really got to see what Braddock would have done because he was dead so quickly after arriving. We will set William Shirley aside for the sake of this conversation, because he was something different entirely. His time during the war always seemed fraught with problems as he was not a military man, nor does there seem to be any real chance that he was ever going to enjoy a long command. Loudon, for his part, was pretty much Braddock part two, except for the dine in battle part. And while this is not an entirely accurate statement, the men were both clearly cut from the same cloth. If either Braddock or Loudon understood the intricacies of colonial politics, they showed no signs of caring about those often delicate matters. Rather, they were incredulous that the colonial leadership did not simply follow their every command. Now, as I said a moment ago, Pitt was very good at understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the British military. Ground armies were not their strong point, but the navy was. Pitt, therefore, was left with the question of how he was going to deal with these weaknesses. He had zero intention of sending off soldiers to get slaughtered in Germany. Yet he knew that he still needed to conduct a continental war. The solution that he came up with was to not do the fighting using British troops, but instead subsidize others to do the fighting for them. What Pitt's plan called for was sending over enough financial support to their continental allies that it kept them in the fight. That way, rather than the British throwing their limited and therefore valuable resources into a long continental war, 
they would instead throw enough money and support towards their allies to encourage them to do the fighting for them. Pitt would then be free to use his much more formidable navy out in the Atlantic to cut off the ability of the French to resupply their holdings in the Americas, thus further weakening the already outnumbered French army in Canada. It is right here where we really see the difference between Pitt and those who had come before him with the North American War. Pitt did not view the colonies simply as being a group to be used as necessary. Rather, he took a far more expansive view of the North American colonies and their place in the Greater War. He did not view the provincials as being a mere auxiliary force, but as a major component of the overall war effort. He saw the provincial forces as being allies in the greater fight against the French. And to be clear, I'm not using the term allies here casually either. Pitt really did view the North American colonies like he did his European allies. Pragmatically, what this meant is that he had no hesitation with pouring money and resources into the colonies to encourage them to take up a significant part of the fight. Now, I'm not going to really belabor this point today, but Pitt's actions here would bring a dramatic shift in how the colonists viewed themselves in the greater British Empire. His policies are ultimately going to come with long-ranging consequences that will forever alter the relationship between the British and their North American colonies. As we move towards the revolution next season, we are going to be coming back to Pitt's policies time and time again. I bring that up now, before we dive too deeply into the policy changes, because I want you all to keep this in your mind as we talk about Pitt's policies. Because the colonists are going to spend much of the next decade and a half dealing with events stemming largely from these policies. What Pitt envisioned in North America was a far larger engagement than what we have ever seen before. Pitt expected 20,000 regulars to join up with another 22,000 provincial troops, an absolutely giant army for the colonies. Now, obviously, that was going to be no small feat for Pitt. The 20,000 troop regular army by itself was substantial. However, asking the colonies to provide 22,000 provincial troops, that was a pretty big ask. We have spent a long time now in the colonies, and we have seen that time and time again. The colonial assemblies and governors were hesitant to provide the resources. And now suddenly Pitt was asking for a very substantial amount of resources. Contrast this with the drama going on back in the colonies surrounding Loudoun. Loudoun had become increasingly upset at the colonial governments that failed to bend to his will. Without question, the 1757 expeditions had been a failure. As the colonies moved through the fall and on into the winter that year, the focus switched to defensive measures, as the frontiers remained a very dangerous place. Indian raids remained a constant threat and showed few signs of ebbing. In fact, on November 12, 1757, a group of French and Indian raiders struck at the small farming community of German Flats. Located in upstate New York, roughly halfway between Albany and modern-day Syracuse, German Flats was the site of a final checkmark on a terrible year for the British in North America. The town was very quickly sacked, before any kind of a response from the nearby British regulars could be mounted. 50 or so in the town were killed outright, with another 150 being captured, 
including the town's mayor. It was yet another blow to the British and a serious hit to the morale of the colonists, both along the frontiers as well in the more urban centers. For Loudoun, it was a clear message about the real dangers that existed along the frontiers, and clearly illustrated the desperate need of the British to better reinforce those vulnerable frontier settlements from French and Indian attacks. Loudoun did exactly what you would imagine he should do. He urgently put out a demand for colonial governments to immediately raise men to come and secure the frontiers. To be clear, absolutely nobody doubted the necessity of this move by Loudoun. All agreed that frontier security was lacking and that they did need to be better protected. A mayor had literally just been kidnapped by a hostile force and dragged away. Nobody disagreed with Loudoun on the basis of what he thought needed to be done. The problem, however, came from Massachusetts, who declined to provide any more men. The argument by the Massachusetts government is that they were already defending their own frontier, and that they had already given more than their fair share to the war. Loudoun was absolutely furious at the insolence that came out of Massachusetts. Loudoun's initial response was to immediately extend enlistments and pay them in out of his own funds. Massachusetts then took things even further when they decided that this was the right moment to resurrect the old New England Confederation. The purpose of reviving the Confederation was to allow the New England colonies to work together on deciding just how much they were going to give to the war effort. The move was meant to help increase the amount of negotiating power that the New England colonies held. However, for a man like Lord Loudon, this was nearly tantamount to treason. There was no need for the colonies to negotiate. This was not a negotiation. This was a situation where Loudon told the colonists how it was going to be, and they said, okay. All of this for Loudon was just too much. The colonists were completely ignoring his authority, and he was going to have to respond. He decided that the time had come to make clear to them who was the boss. On February 23rd and 24th, 1758, Loudon planned to meet directly with the colonial governors to reassert his authority. After yelling at the group as a whole, Loudon then went to Boston with the Massachusetts governor and his former protege, Thomas Pownall. It should be noted that at this point, Pownall was not exactly in a great place with Loudon, as he seems to have caved to the demands of the colonial assembly rather than that of his old mentor. While the purpose of Loudon's trip was to exert control and pressure the Massachusetts General Court into agreeing with his demands for more men, he was about to be exceptionally disappointed. At the start of today's episode, I said we would not get lost in the weeds of Loudon's battles with the colonial assemblies. Now, the reason for that is that none of it really mattered. Like, at all. That is because back in December, Pitt decided that Loudon needed to go. In what was probably a pretty embarrassing moment, Loudon was up in Massachusetts, dressing down the continued feet-dragging of the general court, when on March 10th he received word from William Pitt that his services were no longer needed, and that he was being recalled to London. He was to be replaced immediately by his second-in-command, Major General James Abercrombie. 
there really is not much more that one can say about Lord Loudon that we have not already talked about. Loudon never could come around and get ahead of the continued obstruction towards his policies from the colonial governments. While Loudon did his best to ignore colonial governments, he quickly learned just how much practical power they actually held, much to his considerable chagrin. With Pitt coming into power, Loudon simply did not fit the role that Pitt envisioned for the North American war effort. And just like that, he was gone. With Pitt now having control over the war effort, and Loudon having been replaced with James Abercrombie, we must step back and look exactly at what this all means. There really is no question that Pitt had a different view for the role of the colonies in the war, something that I want to spend the rest of today talking about. At the most basic level, it meant that Loudon was out, which was something that pretty much everybody was thrilled about. Well, quantifying and power-ranking the most hated people thus far in the history of Massachusetts is a futile task. Loudon is doing pretty poorly in those futile, pointless rankings. His personal popularity is maybe marginally better than, say, Edmund Andros's was, and Andros got the full angry mob with pitchforks treatment. Loudon wasted no time in packing up his belongings, getting on the first ship out of New York that he could, and getting as far away as he could from the North American colonies. With Loudon gone, James Abercrombie becomes our guy. Born in 1706 Scotland, Abercrombie was a career military man, having fought in Flanders during the War of Austrian Succession. It isn't as though he had some incredible record or anything like that. Simply, the guy had a long history of faithful and competent service. While his resume may have lacked in any stunning high notes, it also lacked in glaring red flags, which was enough for the king. The bigger change, however, that came with the ousting of Loudon would be in how the war itself was organized and conducted in North America. At first, there is a contradiction that we must address. The colonies were balking at providing the nearly 7,000 troops that Loudon was demanding. Included with the dispatch, however, that saw Loudon fired was a request that the colonies raise some 22,000 provincial troops. However, suddenly, the colonies eagerly agreed and began what was a stunning recruitment effort. So, what gives? The biggest change here is that Pitt shifted the role of the colonies in the war. Rather than just coming over and demanding that the colonial assemblies and governors come up with men and resources, Pitt promised lucrative subsidies to the colonies for their participation. Economically, the colonies were strapped for cash, and they were desperate for a way to get cash into the economy. The subsidies from Pitt did exactly that and gave the colonies a desperately needed injection of capital. These changes gave incentive for men to sign up. We have discussed before that New England lacked the poverty that existed in Britain itself. Whereas in Britain you could fill the ranks of the army from the poor, New England simply did not have the numbers of poor to do that. Rather than trying to escape poverty and their old lives, therefore, in New England, many of the young men called on to fight were interested in having a bit of an adventure and then promptly getting back to their old lives. What Pitt brought with him was money. Suddenly, it was profitable for the colony's young men to join up. For the colonies at large, Pitt's subsidies meant that producing the means of war 
was going to bring in much-needed funds. Pitt also approached the colonists in such a way that it didn't in any way make them lesser than Britain's European allies. The subsidies that he was offering were the same ones being offered in Europe itself. Pitt's plan gave the colonists integration into the empire as equals in a way that they had never before experienced, and indeed that Britain had always been skittish about advancing. Furthermore, Pitt paid special attention to redefining the role of the provincial officer. First, he curtailed the power that Abercrombie had over colonial governors and their councils. He would not be extending those nearly vice-regal powers that Loudoun had enjoyed. He likewise revised the much-hated policy stating that all regular officers in the army would outrank all provincial officers. Now, a provincial officer would rank junior only to an officer in the regular army of the same grade. A provincial colonel would be junior in rank to a colonel in the regular army. However, they would rank superior to, say, a major in the regular army. To say that Pitt's efforts were successful would be an understatement. Even by modern standards, the recruiting effort was stunning. Through these policies, Pitt had greatly increased the size of the fighting force in North America, with nearly 50,000 men now under arms. French Canada at the same time had a total population of right around 80,000, of which only around 15,000 were actually in fighting shape. The British forces overwhelmingly outnumbered their French opponent. The colonies were enjoying a sudden rush of money flowing into them as a result of Pitt's subsidies. These changes were made possible largely because of how poorly the British had been doing in the war to that point. Just focusing on the North American theater right now, we have seen loss after loss. From the first skirmishes at Fort Necessity, Braddock's March to the fall of Oswego, the fall of Fort William Henry and the ensuing massacre, and all the aborted expeditions had made clear that this change was indeed necessary. Pitt was willing to do whatever it took to win the war. He understood the concerns that came with commanding provincial soldiers. He knew that they were notoriously undisciplined and were just as likely to turn around and run in a firefight than stand their ground. Where Pitt would excel is also recognizing that the provincial troops could do the heavy lifting that a war requires. They could build roads, maintain supply lines, and run communications. They could handle all of those aspects of the war, therefore freeing up the British regulars to focus on fighting. If the work sounded hard, well, yeah, it was. But hey, they were now being compensated enough for it that the provincials found it acceptable. Before we wrap up for today, however, I want to encourage you all to put everything we have talked about in this episode today into the back of your minds and just keep it there moving forward. There are going to be dramatic consequences because of Pitt's policies down the road. William Pitt was of a singular focus, winning the war. He was not really concerned with anything else. He was pouring ridiculous amounts of money towards the war, but really that was the problem of the Duke of Newcastle the head of the Treasury Department. We are going to talk later on about just how much money Pitt's programs would cost the empire. Money that was going to need to be repaid, and what that would mean for the colonists. But next season, when we are talking about the American Revolution, a large amount of the run-up to the revolution is going to be tied to Pitt's policies during the French and Indian War. 
Pitt's policies would also again bring up that question of the American colony's place in the greater British Empire. Following the end of the policy of salutary neglect, we saw the British work to curb colonial independence. The empire wanted greater say in how the colonies managed their affairs in order to increase revenue. Pitt's policy shift during the war, however, essentially reverses that again, as it granted the colonists far wider latitude in how to manage the war effort internally. Pitt's policies at a basic level made the colonists feel like allies, rather than merely subordinates to be bossed around. They had a place in the empire, and they were being treated as equals, something that they will not be eager to lose come the 1760s. These long-term consequences, however, are all off in our future, and indeed will make up a substantial portion of the next season of this podcast. In the short term, what William Pitt had done was reboot a faltering British war effort and set the colonies on a new path. Next time, we are going to look at the first major battle of this new era for the British. A battle that, despite said new era, is going to look a whole lot like everything else that we have seen before. With that, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we look at the Battle of Fort Corraland.